Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. I invite you as you're seated, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as we continue our Recalibrate series, recalibrating our life around our lives around biblical truths and biblical principles. We talked about priorities, we've talked about integrity, we've talked about attitudes. As we look at the issue of godliness today, let me just clarify, we're not talking about somebody being super spiritual, the spiritual elite. We're talking about just the people of God striving to have an intimate love relationship with the Father. That's what this issue of godliness is all about. So if you don't get anything else today, I want you to get that, that we're talking about you having an intimate relationship with God. And we're going to look at some statements that Paul makes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10 for our text this morning. Look at verse 24 in chapter 9. Don't you know that runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. However, they do it to receive a crown that will fade away, but we a crown that will never fade away. Therefore, I do not run like the one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Great statement that Paul makes as he brings in another analogy. He loved to use these athletic metaphors, and he talks here about running a race, the Olympics in those days, the Ismithian Games, where they would go and, and compete, and that at the end of the race, they would be given this wreath, a, a garland uh, made of uh, perishable uh, leaves that would be wound up into a, like a crown. And he says, when you run a race like that, when we run a race, you win. It's a, you get this this award this crown but it fades away but we as followers of christ run in a race so we're going to receive uh, imperishable rewards so here's our first truth today as we think about recalibrating our lives around godliness take god seriously You, you shouldn't have to say that but we need to be reminded of that some people take themselves too seriously and don't take god seriously enough we need to take god more seriously so important Paul says here, I am going to run in a way to win the prize. He says, I am going to live my Christian life like an athlete lives to make sure that they're victorious at the end. Now, we're not talking about success in in men's terms or success in in numbers. We're talking about this, this pleasing lifestyle that would be lived all to the glory of God. Paul says, I'm running this race because I want to win this race. And he he gives that analogy about the temporary nature of the way people run. And look at verse 26. I'm not one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air, like sparring. He says, I'm I'm disciplining myself to bring it. Isn't it interesting that the word discipline and discipleship have the same root? We talk about godliness and talk about discipleship. Discipline is a part of that. I'm bringing my life under strict control. And he says so that After preaching others, I myself might not be disqualified. Paul is not talking about losing his salvation. Some have taught that from this passage. He's just saying disqualify from from those rewards, from from that well-done, good, and faithful servant. 
Taking God seriously is so important. I love the story that's told. David McCullough in his book, um, um, that he's written about Teddy Roosevelt, Mornings on Horseback. He tells about Roosevelt when he was a little boy. He started, uh, his family could tell something was going on when it came time to go to church. And he didn't want to go to church. Finally, I said, why don't you want to go to church? Because we've been doing this. And he said, I'm afraid. So why are you afraid to go to church? He said, I'm, I'm afraid of the, the animal that's there to get me. And his mother is puzzled. What are you talking about? And he described this animal that, 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 that lurked in the darkness of the church and kind of half alligator, half another animal. And, and he was afraid. And, and finally he said, I, I, I remember, I think the name of the animal is Zeal. And so his mom is puzzled. So she goes to her Bible and looks through the concordance. So she starts reading these, cha- these passages in the Bible about zeal to try to figure out what in the world her son is talking about. And she comes to the passage that, that says in the old King James, the zeal of the Lord hath eaten me up. So he said, I heard the preacher say the zeal is waiting to eat me up, so I'm afraid of the zeal. I thought that's, he, I, I think they got that straightened out. But, but you know, there's a sense there that when we come to worship the Lord, there just should be this sense of awe. Not that he's there to eat us up, but that we should come with this reverence, with this, this openness to, to him. I love in C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that great uh, statement that's made is Mr. and Mrs. Beaver trying to explain to, to Lucy. They're about to go meet Aslan, the, the Lion King, and, and, and she's talking about being fearful and everything. And, and I love the, the statements that's, that's made. She, she, Lucy says, uh, then he isn't safe. And safe, Mr. Beaver said, don't, don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? And th- this is the line. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that. God, God is a, a mighty God, and we are to be in awe of him because he's good. We don't have to fear him like Roosevelt did as a, as a little child, but we need to fear him with an awe and a respect to take him seriously. So seriously, like Paul says, that I'm going to discipline my life. I'm going to live my life in such a way that I can hear that, that well done, good and faithful servant. So the first issue of godliness is just to have this sense that my relationship with God needs to be important. It needs to be more important than anything else in my life. We talk about prioritizing our life, and, 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 and we, we say your relationship with God needs to be first, and your relationship with your spouse, and then your kids, and, and then any ministry that God would call you to. Sometimes we get that reversed. We put, the, we put our relationship in ministry, our relationship with our family, and God gets dumped down to the, to the bottom there. Paul knows how important it is that his, his relationship with God remain intimate and, and um, lively because he says, I'm going to discipline myself to have that walk with God. Take God seriously. Second truth here from this passage. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Psalm 42 now, all right? Develop a hunger and thirst for God. Just a couple of statements that describe this attitude in Psalm 42. Maybe it's a verse that you know. Maybe it's one that you memorized. Maybe there's a song that you sing that uses this passage. Psalm 42, the first couple of verses. As we think about developing a hunger and thirst for God. Listen to the passage. As a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. I thirst for you, the living God. Just look at that picture. The psalmist gives us this great analogy. Paul gives us the the athletic picture of pursuing victory, of being disciplined. And then the psalmist gives us this picture from nature about a deer. As the deer, some translations say, pants for streams of water. As a deer longs for water, my soul longs for you. Joe Stoll tells a story about being uh, 
in one of the Middle Eastern countries and riding on a camel and they, they went for a long distance across the desert and he was listening to the, the tour guide and the tour guide was telling him how that camel can go three months without water. And Saul was saying, as I thought about how, how that is, then I thought about this passage right here that I just read in Psalm 42. The, the, the contrast between a camel that gets enough water to make it three months and the deer that longs for streams of water. It's this picture of a, of a deer who loves to live in the valley where the springs are, but because of maybe a, a hunter or maybe because of predator, this deer has been forced up into the mountains in the rocks. And you have this deer now longing to get back to the stream, longing to get back to the refreshing water. And Stoll makes the note, and I love this, this application, we live our lives sometimes like the camel. We become indifferent and we say, okay, I've spent my time with God and I can go a few months. There's no urgency. I'll just, I'll just spend time with God when I get around to it. Instead, we're to be like the psalmist says right here, longing for streams of water. So let's make a couple of statements here about this hungering and thirsting for God. A person who is godly is one whose heart is sensitive toward God. I believe that as the psalmist says, I'm longing for those streams as, as a deer longs for the streams, my soul thirsts and longs for you. A person who is godly, as we talk about godliness, is one whose heart is sensitive towards God. How's your heart? We take these checkups all the time. I go to my annual physical and they put all the little patches on and wires and stuff because they want to check my heart. That's something that they do because that's, that's what's vital. That's the, really the, the organ that makes everything else work. Think about that heart application in the life of a, of a person who walks with God. We have, need to have a heart, a heart for God. I, as the psalmist says, I long for you. He's saying, in, in essence, my heart longs for you, oh God. Do you have that, that longing? Is there a sensitivity toward the things of God? In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the story of Israel trying to select a king, ultimately, Samuel tells them, man does not see what the Lord sees, for man sees what's visible, and God sees the heart. Other translations say it this way, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. What would it look like if we showed up week after week after week, and all people could see was our heart? I'm not talking about the physical organ, I'm talking about what's important to us, what our passions are, what we hunger and what we thirst after. To develop a hunger and thirst for God means I'm going to be sensitive to God. There's this, this picture all through Scripture of those who have a walk with God and then they become cold and indifferent and they step back and they become hardened and calloused. And the Bible talks about that hard heart, hard heart. I can remember when I used to ride motorcycles, I always had blisters on my hands and my, and my thumb right here from twisting the throttle and hanging on. And when I didn't ride very long and I'd go out, you know how weekend warriors are, we do it in the yard, we do it with yard work with shovels or on the motorcycle, and at the end of that time, I'd have these blisters. But if I would stay consistent, and I would ride every day, then those blisters would, would turn into what? Calluses. And when they're callous, then you don't seem to feel anything anymore. It's because you get hardened to that stuff. Sometimes we get to that place where our heart becomes calloused and hardened toward the things of God. I pray that I would not be there I pray that God would always keep me fresh and sensitive to, to his voice, to his touch, to what he has to say. A sense of sensitivity toward him. A hunger and thirst also means this. A person who is godly will have an attitude of willing submission. An attitude of willing submission. Two passages. We've looked at one of these recently, but we're going to go back there. 
Philippians chapter 2. This statement about Christ and his submission. This first area of submission is submitting to the Holy Spirit. Submitting to the Holy Spirit. Listen to verse 18 in, Philippians, in Ephesians 5. And do not get drunk with wine which leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the Spirit. We've said before that to be filled with the Spirit doesn't mean that God pours more of his Spirit in us. It doesn't mean that he changes us emotionally. It means I'm being controlled by the Spirit. This analogy Paul uses, just as a person might be under the influence of alcohol and controlled by the alcohol, he said, what you need to be, Christian, you need to be under the influence of the Spirit. You need to be controlled by the Spirit. So if we were to paraphrase that verse, it would be, it would be um, let the Spirit of God control you, verse 18 of Philippians 5. A sensitive, willing attitude of submission is, first of all, submitting to the Holy Spirit of God. How are you doing in that area yet? Is, is God's Holy Spirit speaks to your heart? Are you, are you willing to say yes? That's really what spirit, being spirit-filled is. It's moment by moment saying yes to the, to the Spirit of God as he prompts you. I love the story. Ralph Pinelli was a, a major league umpire, had a great career with a couple of major league ball teams, and then he was a, a, an umpire. I think he, he uh, called like six World Series in, in his career. There was one time where Babe Ruth came to the plate and they, they told Pinelli not to be careful about what you call as a strike because he'd get real upset. He said, I'm going to call him like I see him. And the ball came over the plate and he called it as a strike and Ruth looked up at him, the umpire, and you know, really angry and said, said that was not a strike, that was a ball. And he said, there's 40,000 fans. They were screaming, 40,000 fans out there uh, would, tell, would, would agree with me that that was a ball and not a strike. And Pinelli says, well, maybe so. That's their opinion. But mine's the only opinion that counts. I'm the ump. That's the way it is, isn't it? That, that you go with that, that's the final word. There are a lot of voices out there. There are a lot of things pulling at us, tugging at us, and one of those voices may be your own for control of your life, but there's only one that matters. It's as if the Holy Spirit would say to us, yeah, I hear all those voices, I hear your concerns, I hear your excuses, but mine's the only opinion that counts. Submit to me, the Spirit would say. Secondly, that attitude of submission, not just to the Spirit, but submitting to one another, submitting to one another. Look at Ephesians 5 again. Picking up in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord. There's a heart again. That's this attitude of, of, the, of I'm willingly submitting to the Holy Spirit. I'm yielded to him. And it's, it's a heart issue. Giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So important. Mutual submission. One of the, uh, one of the ministries that we have that we're emphasizing now is our grow groups. And for everybody to be involved in one of those small groups, that's a perfect place for you to exercise this. For you to exercise submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. To say to a small group on a weekly basis, I'm here, I'm accountable, you hold me accountable, I'll hold you accountable. Not my rights, but putting you first as, as we've looked at. Not to look after my own, but to look after the needs of others. Submitting to one another. So important. I love the story about a, a young bride and she... She kind of gave the wrong message about submission. It's so interesting when I, when I do wedding ceremonies and I get to that point and, and I'm asking the bride to say she's going to submit the, to the husband. And there's giggles sometimes, there's you know, chuckles. Sometimes you hear comments from the audience, but we, I still ask them to say that. 
that they're gonna, the wife isn't going to submit to the husband. Well, this wife sent the wrong message, but this bride was really nervous about her wedding day. So the pastor said, look, it's, it's going to be okay when you get there on the wedding day. And they're going through the rehearsals. Here's what I want you to do. When you walk in that, when you walk in that room, I, I just want you to look down that aisle. And, and you've walked down that aisle so many times before. Just I want you to focus on the aisle. That's all you need to do. And when you get about halfway down that aisle, I want you to look up to the altar where you've been before and just focus on the altar. And then keep walking toward the altar, and as you look up to the altar, you're going to see your groom. You're going to see that one you long to be married to, and I want you to focus on him. So she got that message, and so she started walking down the aisle. She's thinking of this, aisle, altar, him. So she walks down there, all the way down the aisle, altar, him, aisle, altar, him, and people kind of got the wrong message about that. Some of you will get that later, maybe. (laughs) Submitting to one another. Sometimes we have this attitude, I'm going to alter them. I'm not going to submit to others. I'm going to make them submit to me, my ways, my agenda, my ideas. It's not to be that way, this attitude of submission. Number one, take God seriously. Number two, develop a hunger and thirst for God. And then Paul, back in 1 Corinthians, goes into this explanation of the children of Israel. And I want us to look at this passage because it's our example So number three, learn from the example of those who have gone before us. Learn from their example. We're going to read the first five verses in chapter 10 and talk about this. Learn from their example. First of all, they were privileged. And these are the first five verses. They're privileged. Listen to this description. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Well, let's just look at the, the, the picture of their um, the privileges that they had. First of all, they had supernatural guidance and protection. But the Bible says in verse 1 that they were all under the cloud. Remember the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night? They guided them. That's what he's talking about. God gave them supernatural guidance and protection. Secondly, he talks about miraculous deliverance from their enemies. He says, you all pass through the sea. All pass through the sea. He's talking about the Red Sea. Remember when Pharaoh's army was there and they were about to pounce on the Israelites? The sea opened up and they walked across. God's miraculous deliverance from enemies. The third privilege they had, they were united under God-given leadership. United under God-given leadership. A lot of discussion about this phrase in verse 2. They were baptized into Moses. It just means that they identified with Moses as their deliverer. He's just saying, God gave you a deliverer. God gave you someone to follow, and you had that privilege to do that. And then next he mentions in verse 3, they ate the same spiritual food. They, they had supernatural provision of food from heaven. Remember the manna that came, quail that came. God, God provided um, that spiritual, it's called spiritual food here because it came from God. And then the last privilege, they had supernatural provision of water. In verse 4, he mentions this water that came from the rock. Remember that? As Moses struck the rock and God allowed water to come from the rock, God provided all those things. So here's what he says to them. You have been given all these privileges. Don't take them for granted. Now that's what he said to the children of Israel. So he comes to the Corinthians. 
And he says to them, you've been given all these privileges, church at Corinth. Don't take them for granted. If you go through that list, you will find that the, the, the people at Corinth had God's guidance. They had been delivered. They'd been saved from sin. They'd been given Paul and others as God-given leadership. God had given them the, the food, the word of God as their food, and the spiritual drink they had was the spirit of God. God had given them all these privileges. And he's saying, by giving them this example, you, church at Corinth, have done exactly like the children of Israel have done. You've had all these privileges, and you've taken it for granted. So here's the word that, that I believe God has for us out of this passage today, is we're privileged. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted that you have, a, you have a place to meet, a place to worship, people who love you. You have the word of God. You have the spirit of God. Sometimes when we come together to pray, I'm mindful to say, God, before we even start praying, thank you that we're saved. Thank you that we can even come before you as a a small group or as our men pray here on Sunday morning or a a meeting, a committee meeting that we have. God, thank you that we're saved. What a privilege. Just like the church at Corinth. We're privileged. By the way, you know what happens when you ignore privileges? You lose them. Now, they're not taken away all the time, but they lose the, 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 uh, the impact in your life. So as we walk through the passage, not only were they privileged, but they forfeited their privileges. They forfeited their privileges. So we've seen five advantages they were given. Now we're going to see like this five-fold failure of the children of Israel. Look at verse 6. After he says in verse 5, God was not pleased with them. Now these things became examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people fell dead. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Nor should we complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as examples and were written as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. Let me just quickly walk through their five-fold failure as they forfeited their privileges. First of all, they craved evil. Verse 6 says they desired evil things. Secondly, they participated in idolatry. He says they, you, you are becoming idolaters like some of them did in Egypt. The third privilege that they forfeited was they participated in sexual immorality. They sinned. He says you committed sexual immorality as some of them did in Egypt. You question God's purpose and plan, verse 9. They tested God. The Bible says that some of them um, tested him and complained. Remember, they questioned Moses. They questioned Aaron. They questioned God. God, why did you bring us out here to die in the desert? And ultimately, they rebelled against God's appointed leaders and griping against Moses and Aaron, and ultimately, several rebellions took place. So here's the truth. By the way, Paul makes very clear in that passage, doesn't he, that the Corinthians had done what they had done in Egypt too, what the the children of Israel had done. He's saying, "This, this is where we are. This is what happens to us. You forfeited your privileges by failing in all of these areas. I love what D.A. Carson says about this issue of holiness and godliness. See, the children of Israel are this example to us that you've been given this great privilege Don't take it for granted. Be like Paul. Be disciplined to maintain that fellowship. Here's what Carson says about holiness. We drift toward compromise 
and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godliness and convince our, godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. Here's what Carson's saying. He's saying, you never drift toward holiness. You always drift away. Does that make sense? We never naturally drift toward godliness. We drift away. One of the great truths that, that I learned from the uh, family life people at the weekend to remember, just it stuck with me. It's a marriage seminar that's held all over the country every year. And, and one of the truths they, they share, and I teach it all the time, that in any marriage relationship, the natural drift is towards isolation. God's desire is oneness. The natural drift in any marriage is isolation. You're going to drift apart. And that, that applies to our walk with God. The natural thing for us to do is to go our own way, right? All we like sheep have gone our own way. We've turned everyone to his own way. We have this natural tendency to drift from God, and we're going to drift away if we do nothing. Does that make sense? Holiness doesn't just happen. We don't drift closer to him. He draws us. He woos us. He calls us. His spirit lives within us and tries to control us by by pleading with us and, and rebuking us and correcting us, but we have to answer. We have to respond. We don't drift toward that. It's something we have to work towards. So number four, we're going to look at verse 11 again through 13. Listen to the warning. Listen to the warning. These things happened to them as examples and were written to us as a warning on whom the end of the ages have come. Paul's just saying we're closer to the return of Christ than they were. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful and he will allow you to be tempted beyond, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide also a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. Listen to the warning. So here's the first warning for us. Be careful. No one is immune from falling away in their relationship with God. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about the the, uh, intimate relationship that you have, closeness to him. Be careful. No one is immune from sin. By the way, there's, there's one word in the Bible that's used, and it's translated sometimes tempt and sometimes test. And it's clear that God never tempts us. He will test us, and his test is in order to approve us. Satan tempts us in order to break us. To see the difference? So when you have something coming your way, you wonder, is it a test or a trial? Is it a temptation? Kind of look at what, how that could be used in your life. We can either give in to the temptation and yield to sin and doubt God in his plan and purpose for us, or we can grow stronger through the test, whatever it is. So, so important. Be careful. Paul is saying here, look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. That should be encouraging a little bit that what you're going through other people have gone through. But what he's trying to say is you're going to go through this. So be careful. No one is immune from falling in their relationship with Christ. No one is immune from becoming distant from him. And we can either choose to Yield to Christ, going back to our our statement about yielding to the Spirit, we can choose to yield to him, or we can choose to say yes to sin and fail. Chuck Swindoll makes an incredible statement about the children of Israel. I just want to read what he says. 
he says, their respect for God that caused their mouths to open in silent awe had now degenerated into a jaded yawn of disrespect. Isn't that great? He, he says, at one time, you were in awe of what God had done, and now you're just yawning your way through the Christian life. Could that describe you? At one moment, you were in awe. You woke up with this sense of, God, thank you that I have this day to walk with you and worship you, and now you just kind of show up, and you go through your day. Maybe you even show up on Sundays, and it's an it's a apathetic, going-through-the-motions kind of thing. Be careful. You're going to drift. It's natural. Let's be like Paul. Let's be disciplined in that intimate relationship of walking in obedience with him. I read an account recently about the Hibernia oil platform out in the North Atlantic. It's, it's, it's designed as an island. It's anchored to the bedrock, and they have all these safeguards in, put in place. And the, that part of the, the North Sea, the icebergs are very common. So they have all these concrete uh, posts or pillars that are put all around this, this oil platform. And they say that they can, these things will withstand, I, I wrote down here, a, a one million ton iceberg coming that way. That's a lot, right? Coming their way. So they've got the, all these protecting uh, pillars all out there. And they've also got this gear out there that will tell them when icebergs are coming. And they can, if they're small enough, they'll push them away or tow them away or they'll break up. And in addition to all of that, they monitor the sea within like 27 miles around the platform to make sure they know where all the icebergs are. I thought that's what you call being careful and then being more careful and being careful over careful, right? They are super, super, super cautious because of all the other oil field accidents that have been out there. I think Paul is saying the same thing to us. Don't just, don't just say, I'm going to guard my heart. Say, I'm going I'm to put myself in, a, in relationships that are going to help hold me accountable. I'm going to put myself in a body that's going to strengthen and encourage and help discipline me. I'm going to be careful. Careful. And then a word of encouragement to wrap up here. Don't give up. God is faithful. Don't give up. God is faithful. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. God will come through. God is faithful. Some might think, well, I've gone too far. Well, God is faithful. Are you willing to turn back to him? God is faithful. I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, I, I, man, I'm afraid I've gone too far. I've even had people come to me and say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm afraid I've, I, I'm not saved. I've lost my salvation. I tell them, well, you can't lose it if you had it. But then I remind them that the very fact that you're concerned about this means God's Holy Spirit is working in you. And it's, it's evidence that you haven't gone too far. Does that make sense? That, that if I'm concerned about my walk with the Lord, that's evidence that God is faithful. He's still calling me. He's still wooing me. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Be careful. Don't give up. God is faithful in this relationship with him called godliness, spiritual intimacy. I'd like to wrap up with three questions. You might want to write these down. Three diagnostic questions for your own heart. Have I begun to lose the fresh delight of my walk with the Lord? Have I come to a place where I'm beginning to lose that, that delight 
of a fresh walk with the Lord. Secondly, have spiritual things become so commonplace in my life that I'm bored by them? Have spiritual things become so commonplace that they're boring to me? And this number three is one that I ask myself, and it's so convicting all the time. Was there a time in my life when I was in closer fellowship with the Lord than I am right now? Has there been a time in my life when I was in closer fellowship with the Lord than I am right now? And if there is a time where I was closer, guess who moved? See, Paul underscores this. God is faithful. He's right where he's always been. He's still calling you. If you're not as close, you are the one who have drifted. I'm fighting the ongoing battle of weeds in my yard. Anybody else fight that battle? And I'm learning the more research I do that the key to killing the weeds is not so much killing the weeds, but to have a healthy lawn. Let me encourage you, one of the keys to eliminating those weeds in our life is to develop that healthy relationship with God. If you answered yes to any of those questions, if you're losing your fresh delight, if you're not as close as you were, if you become bored by the things of God, this could be an opportunity as we prepare for Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, just to say, God, here I am. This is going to be a fresh start for me. New. Starting today. Let's pray together.